Thank you, Brother Larry, and thanks to the church for asking me to come and preach to you today. I know you miss your new pastor, Brother Neil, and um, I uh, hate that he's gone, but I'm sort of glad because it gives me an opportunity to come over and speak to you today on this great Lord's Day. Uh, Brother Larry just told you about uh, being at Benton, Arkansas. I did pastor there twice. I pastored Jonesboro twice, and I pastored South Shore, Kentucky twice. Not very many pastors have pastored three churches twice. And I tell all of them, either they forgot how poor of a preacher I was or felt sorry for me because they asked me to come back and pastor them twice. They were hugging Brother Carvin and I up there. They hugged Brother Carvin because he was uh, such a great pastor and all a great chapel, and they hugged me uh, just because they felt sorry for me. And uh, But we, uh, we had a great time in the Lord as we uh, celebrated Brother Perry's life. By the way, I'll give you a little commercial. On Friday night of camp meeting at Pollock, that will be on August the 2nd, August the 1st, I believe, Friday night, uh, I will be doing a memorial tribute to Brother Clayton Perry at the Friday night service of our campground. So if you'd like to uh, come on Friday night, you will be able to come and see a tribute that we're going to do to Brother Perry. The only drawback is they also have me scheduled to preach that night. So unless you leave after the tribute, you'll have to stay and hear me preach on Friday night. But the theme of our camp meeting is on uh, servanthood, and they let us choose our own subjects if it had something to do with servanthood. I'm going to be preaching on uh, the servant's reward on Friday night. So uh, I think you'll be able to hear something that you will enjoy. We're just back recently from the North American Convention of the Church of God, which was held uh, for the first time this year away from Anderson, Indiana. And I went to Anderson. Well, actually, I was born 20 miles from there. I went to Anderson, what we call Anderson Camp Meeting, uh, all of my life. First time I attended, I was not even a year old. And so I thought, well, I don't know how this is going to work, moving out of Anderson and moving uh, to Oklahoma City. But it was a great, great convention. And uh, the Lord was there, and it was outstanding. Even as we sit here, I want to remind you that there are over 5,000 uh, teenagers uh, from the Church of God who are gathered in Nashville, Tennessee at the International Youth Convention. My oldest son, Stephen, and his youth group are there from his church. I said, son, you're seeing your pastor. You're supposed to stay home. He said, I'm going to the youth convention. I've always been. I'm going. And he said, he um, emailed me and sent me some stuff and said, man, it's great. The young people are being challenged. So pray for the next day or two for the International Youth Convention. Since I am, as Brother Larry said, the state coordinator, I have to make a couple of commercials. One is that the Palmetto Camp Meeting begins on Thursday night, July the 17th at the Palmetto Campground. And you are invited. It is a great camp meeting. And if you can go and attend any of the Palmetto Camp Meeting, you will be blessed. Then the Pollock Camp Meeting starts on July the 28th and goes through uh, the first um, Saturday in August. 
and um, many of you have attended Pollock Camp Meeting. You know how wonderful it is. Let me encourage you to come to Pollock Camp Meeting again this year, and you will be blessed. Uh, one of the things that we're doing this year again at Camp Meeting, uh, well, something that is new for all of the men on Wednesday afternoon, we're having a men's gathering, and it's homemade ice cream. And the ladies have something else to do, but it's not eating ice cream, I'm sorry to say. That will be on Wednesday. On Thursday, Sister Dana Owens is going to do a presentation on Mercy Ministries at our campground. And then Friday, uh, I'm putting together another Heritage Gospel Singing at 3.30 in the afternoon. And then I already told you about the service remembering Brother Perry uh, on Friday night. Well, enough of the commercials. Let's get down to preaching. That's what I came for. Uh, somebody asked me, said, how do you like being a state coordinator? I said, well, has good and bad. Uh, one thing that's not so good is that you get everybody's cares dumped on you, all the churches and all the pastors, which is all right. I have fairly broad shoulders, and my Lord has even broader shoulders than I, so I just always pass it on to Him and say, Lord, this is too big for me, so here it is. But the good part of it, of it is I get to visit uh, the congregations of the Church of God, 53 of them we have in Louisiana. I get to visit all the congregations, and most of the time they ask me to preach while I'm there. I am a preacher by heart. That's what God called me to do. I am a preacher by heart, and I love the opportunity to preach the good news. So let's go into our message for today. My wife gave me a book for Christmas. If you have not read this book, uh, I would suggest that you buy it. At any age, you will find this to be a tremendous book. Uh, the name of it is, and I know you can't see it, but I'll hold it up. It's written by uh, Brother Billy Graham. Uh, the title of it is Nearing Home. Nearing Home. It's about finishing up the end of your life. So when my wife, Glenda, by the way, she said to tell you all hello. She is singing in a patriotic thing in Shreveport today. So I don't know why she'd rather sing than hear me preach. But anyway, that's where she is. So she gave me this book, and when I looked at the title, I said, Are you trying to tell me something? Uh, this is a book for old people nearing home. Do you, do you have anybody in mind? And so she said, Read inside. And I read inside, To my loving husband. I said, Well, that's me. But uh, this is a tremendous book. I wish that I had, I wish that uh, Billy Graham had written this book many, many years ago, and I'd had a copy of it. But at any age, you'll find it a great, great book. I call your attention to a section that he writes in this book about the end of life. It's called Our Greatest Legacy. Listen to this. The greatest legacy you can pass on to your children and grandchildren is not your money or other material things that you have accumulated in life. The greatest legacy that you can pass on to them is the legacy of your character and your faith. The same is true for other young people who know us and observe us, even if they aren't related to us. This, after all, is what our grandchildren and others who knew us will remember us years after we are gone, for better or for worse. If our character is bad, 
marked by greed or thoughtlessness or anger or bitterness or selfishness or irresponsibility or a lack of integrity or any other negative quality, this is how we will be remembered. But if our character and integrity has been shaped by Christ over the years, they can't help but see this and remember it. Why is faith our greatest legacy? Because the memory of what we were like, not just our personalities, but our character and our faith, has the potential to influence others for Christ. Isn't that great? Doesn't that just um, make your mind start working? When I read that, uh, my mind just started searching. And mostly it was searching in my own life, as well as many dear saints of God that I have known through the years, including my own parents. And so as a result of that and much prayer, God gave me a sermon, and I'm going to preach that sermon by the best of my ability and with God's help today. I call it a saint's legacy, a saint's legacy. And I want you to think about yourself. Some of you are young people sitting out there, uh, but I hope you'll still think because you are in the building stages of your legacy. You have an opportunity uh, in the future to build something that you will be glad to leave. Some of the rest of us, uh, it may be almost too late to do any more building. Our legacy is pretty well set. However, even in these days of life, as long as you have breath, God gives you the ability to look at your life and move up a little further. The person that I worry about more than anyone else in the church is the person who has quit growing. The person who has said, now I have it all, let me just wait for the Lord to come and take me home. That is a dangerous person in the church. But the person who may be even up in their 90s, and I've seen many of them pastor them, who still say more of God, more of God in my life. Let me continue to search my life. Let me continue to see how I can be more like him. They are always a blessing to the life of the church. So I read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5 this morning, a very wonderful story about a man who, if you're not a Bible scholar, you may just know his name. You may not even remember very much about him, but when his name is called, you say, oh, I've heard that name before. And the reason you've heard that name is because of one event that happened in his life. It's the whole reason he's in the New Testament gospel of Mark. There were many, many things, no doubt, that happened in his life that were great. But one special thing happened, and he is remembered for that. And here it is, beginning with verse 21, reading through verse 24, and then I'll jump down to verse 35 and finish the reading. And when Jesus was passed over again by the ship unto the other side, many people gathered unto him, and he was close to the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. When he saw him, he fell at Jesus' feet. 
and besought him, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray and ask you, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and many people followed him and thronged him. Drop down to verse 35. While Jesus was yet speaking to the multitude, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house a man which said, Your daughter is dead. Why do you trouble Jesus any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, just believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and saw the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly, and when he was come in, he said unto them, Why do you make all this ado, and why are you weeping? This little girl is not dead, she is sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entered into where the young girl was lying. And he took the young girl by the hands and said unto her, Talithia kumai, which is interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve, and they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that they should give her something to eat. I want to ask you a loaded, simple question. Everybody in this audience can answer this, and all of you will get it right. The little girl's 12 years old. Let's, let's move up the calendar uh, 20 years. Let's move up till she's 32 years old. What do you think her greatest story is? If you would say to her at age 32, tell me the story of your life. What do you think she'd say? Let's move up 20 more years. Let's move her into the 50s. What do you think she's going to say the greatest event of her life was? Move her even further into the 70s, 80s, 90s. Move her till her last day on earth and say unto her, what has been the greatest day of your life? And the answer's always going to be the same. She's going to say something like this. When I was a little girl, 12 years old, I was dying. In fact, I did die. But my daddy, my wonderful daddy, went and found the man called Jesus and brought him to our home. And even after I was pronounced dead, Jesus reached down and lifted me up and I came back to life. And see me? I am alive and well thanks to Jesus and to my daddy. Sometimes we uh, don't want to include ourselves, but I've found that uh, God uses individuals. He uses people. So if God does something great with your life, Give him the glory and give him the credit because he did it. But also recognize that maybe you, as a follower of Christ, may have had some part in that as well, that God used you. Never be embarrassed that God uses you. 
It's a blessing to be used of God. So I got to thinking, what is the legacy of Jairus? <laughs> um, Mark said some things about him. He's a young man. He has a daughter who's 12. He is a ruler of the synagogue. That's an important thing. Um, he is uh, probably fairly wealthy. He's not, uh, he, he's above average in wealth. I don't know what he looked at, but he must have been decent looking because some woman found him attractive enough to marry him. And uh, on and on, you can surmise a lot of things that probably were true about Jairus. But the thing that he is remembered for is found in the text today. His legacy is found in the text. I looked up the word legacy because I wanted to make sure I had it right. And the definition of the word legacy is this. What you will be remembered for slash <coughs> what you leave to others. What you will be remembered for and what you leave to others. I want to ask you today. I ask myself. Uh, you don't know how long you have, neither do I. But one of these days, uh, should the Lord tarry, you and I are going to be gone. I hate to bring you bad news, but it's going to happen. You're going to be gone, and I'm going to be gone. And when you are gone, then is when your legacy kicks in. That's when people start saying what they remember about you and what you left. I had a unique experience. Brother Larry told you part of it. In the space of 10 days, I helped preach the funeral of two men. One he already told you, Brother Clayton Perry, who was 91. The other was a man who lived in the community where I live, who, who died at 89. Both of them were, were, were similar. They were both great friends of mine. Both of them had served in the Army Air Corps. Who knows what that is? Army Air Corps. Oh, you don't, you don't want me to point you out. It's your age. You have to be old to know what that is. I know what it is. The Army Air Corps is what they called the Air Force in World War II. Didn't call it the Air Force. They called it Army Air Corps. And both of these men served in the Army Air Corps. Brother Perry and this other man. Both of them, I did practically the same thing. I listened to people as they came in. And listen to what they had to say. And then I had a part or did the service and said what God had laid upon my heart. Both of them were the, almost the same age. Both of them were good friends of mine. Both of them served in the Army Air Corps and served our country. But they were remembered for different things. For Brother Perry, the conversations were like this. Man, uh, uh, how... how much of a blessing he was. Uh, how wonderful of a pastor he was. How great of a, of a saint he was and how he um, uh, loved the Lord and loved the church and gave his life in doing whatever he could for the church and probably the campground that we have and enjoy at Polly probably would not be anything close to what it is today had it not been for Clayton Perry. I'll share that on Friday night of, of camp meeting. The other man also was a Christian man. I knew him well. 
I was his pastor at one time. He was a Christian man, but he was extremely wealthy. And the people who came said, man, uh, he was wise in, in his uh, investments. He knew how to make money. He uh, was one of the wealthiest individuals we ever met, and on and on it went. And I thought later, uh, both of them left a legacy. There was really nothing wrong with either one, but which was the greatest? And which would you rather have said about you? Would you rather the world remember you as a saint of God who gave everything they had for the church when you're gone? Or a man who went to church and was a Christian but spent most of his life accumulating other things? And I think the answer is obvious. When you read the Bible, you find that everyone who serves the God <coughs> has some kind of legacy, something they're remembered for. You know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know what their legacy is? If you ever went to Sunday school or Bible school and the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is brought up, you immediately say, oh yeah, those were the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. And they were the ones who said, O king, our God can and will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know this. We're not going to bow down to your idol. We're staying true to God if he delivers us or not. We know he will, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know that should he not do that, you have not won this battle. Daniel was a great man. <coughs> you can read the history of Daniel. But if you ask any Christian, what was Daniel known for? All of them will say the same thing. He was the man who was in the lion's den and prayed to God when he was not supposed to. David was a great man and a great king. But if you ask anybody, what's David remembered for? They all will say, we all will say, he was the boy who took the sling and slew Goliath. And the Lord directed that rock like a missile and slew the giant Goliath. You see, the legacy is written. Paul's and all the way through. The only ones that are not written yet are ours. And so we ask ourselves, what should be the legacy that we're remembered for? Going back to Jarius in our text, I want to give you some things why Jarius is remembered that way. For instance, in verse 22, it mentions he is a ruler of the synagogue, but he is a man who knew where to go when he needed help. A ruler of the synagogue is not a person who often will say, I'm not, I can't get it done. Uh, they considered themselves to be self-sufficient. But when his daughter was ill, he had enough sense to go to Jesus and fall at his feet. His legacy then is not that he could do whatever needed to be done. His legacy is he had enough sense <coughs> to know <coughs> where to go and to where to find Jesus and say, Lord, this is greater than I am. I want that to be a part of my legacy. I want it to be said of me when life is over. 
Uh, he did not have the answer for everything, but he knew the one who did. I love the story that uh, Brother Boyce Blackwelder used to tell. You've probably heard me tell it, but you won't hurt you to hear it again. Brother Blackwelder was out in the backyard one evening with his grandchildren. They were about six or seven. And uh, Dr. Blackwelder, in my opinion, is the most brilliant mind the Church of God has ever known. I mean, that man could take the Bible and he could explain it to you in the Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament, or whatever it took. And when he got through, <laughs> there was no doubt in your mind what God had said. Well, this brilliant man's out in the backyard up in Anderson where he lived with his grandkids. And he thinks, this is a great time to uh, teach my young grandchildren about God. And so he looks up there and he sees this great moon shining and he says to his grandchildren, he said, you know, uh, that beautiful moon up there, God made that. And the grandkids looked, you know, they had heard it before, but they were hearing it again. And then he said, and you see all those stars? Yeah. Well, God made those too. And in the morning when the sun comes up over there in the east, as it always does, God made that too. And man, he was just going through the process. You know how we who are grandparents do. And finally, I, we just had our grandson for a week and I've answered a million questions. Finally, the uh, uh, grandson, one of them speaks up and says, well, granddaddy, um, you said God made the moon. And Black Welder said, yeah. You said God made the stars. He said, yeah, thank you, brother. You said God made the sun in the morning. He said, yeah. Well, would you tell me how God did that? Well, now that's a trapping question. Because if you've read Genesis, it says that God made it all out of nothing. You explain that to a four or five-year-old child. I want to be there when you do it. You explain how God took nothing and made all this, including them, from the dust of the earth. And Blackwelder thought, well, if I was in class... You know, I could go through the theological discourse of all of that. But these are little grandchildren. They don't understand all of that. And so he thought for himself and he said, what am I going to say? And finally, this is what he said to his grandchildren. Well, I can't tell you when God did that. I can't tell you how God did that. Your granddaddy does not know when and how God did that. But I want to tell you this, your granddaddy knows the God who did it. Now what do you think his children remember unto this day? That their grandfather was able to give the theological uh, uh, things about how God did all that and they didn't understand it? Of course not. What they remember is that their, their granddaddy said, I don't understand all that, can't explain it to you, but I know the God who did it. That's the way I want it to be in my life. I want my grandchildren. I want the people that I've pastored. I want the people that I work with in the church of God to say about my life. He did not have all the answers about everything because I don't. But I want him to say, but he knew the God who did. You see, that's what preaching's all about, my friend. It's being presenting the God who is able to people. 
Even though you can't explain how God can heal. You can't explain how God can comfort. You can't explain how God knows everything. You can't explain how God knows the very thoughts and the secrets and intentions of your life. But you can explain there is a God and point people to God. A second thing that Jairus was known for is that he had great faith in the God that he knew. Verse 23, he besought him saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray you come and lay your hands on her. She will be healed and she shall live. Listen, Jairus had more faith than most of you. Because when we want to be healed or have somebody healed, we say, oh Lord, whatever you want to do, it's all right. Whatever your will is, we'll accept it. Well, we don't preach divine healing like we started out preaching in the church of God, and shame on us. That's the reason we're also uh, in such bad shape physically, and some of us mentally, is because we don't exercise the faith of divine healing that we once did in this great reformation movement of the church of God. When I was a little bitty boy, my daddy took me at Anderson and took me in the old gym and took me in that room where there was lined with wheelchairs and crutches and all kinds of braces and stuff. And my dad said uh, to me, son, do you see all this stuff in here? I said, yeah, daddy, I see it. This is stuff that people left behind when God healed them here on this campground. I still remember that. Years and years later, I still remember it. If that had been us, we might have said, Lord, we don't know if you will or not, but we know that you can if you want to. So would you come and and lift our daughter up? Not Jairus. Jairus said, let me tell you something. If you'll come and put your hands on my daughter, she's going to be healed. I know that. That's why I'm here. What a legacy of faith. Leave a legacy of faith that says God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think or ask. A third thing is that Jairus was a man who actually walked with Christ. I love to read that verse 24. Jesus went with him. (laughs) Jesus went with him. Now I want to tell you something. Um... Jesus doesn't go every place with everybody. Uh, Somebody changed the theology years ago and said God goes everywhere that you go. No, he doesn't. If you think God's going down to the strip joint with you, you better look around when you get there because he's not going to be there. If you think he's going to sit beside you in the casino, you better look who's on the next seat. You see, God is a God of holiness and a God of purity and a God of justice. And while He loves you and wants to abide with you, you need to think if you get off track, God's getting off track with you. God stays on track. So Jairus said, Lord, um, I'm just going to walk with you. I didn't go directly home, but he went with Jesus. Now, Probably nobody made a big deal about that after the little girl was brought back to life. 
But I can tell you, Jairus never forgot. As long as his life, he never forgot the day that he walked down the road with Jesus Christ. In fact, it was so significant that our writer even put it in the text. Doesn't hardly seem worth mentioning, does it? In light of the raising the dead. But he puts in the text, and Jesus walked with him. And Jesus went with him. What a legacy that Jesus would walk with that man. Finally, a part of his legacy is that he believed God was able even when the circumstances were against him. You know, circumstances often get against you in life, don't they? Um, we got home from uh, the convention. I was, I was worn out. You drive through Dallas from one side to the other. If you're not worn out, you're a superman. I was worn out when we got through Dallas and still had Dallas to Jonesboro to go. We got home. We got everything unloaded. Took forever. Get it all unloaded. It was hot. And uh, I sat down and I heard something making a sound. I said to my wife, I said, you hear that? Well, what is that? I said, I don't know. I could hear it was under the house, though. I got down, put my ear on the floor. Like never got back up, but I got down, put my ear to the floor. Oh, my, what a terrible sound. I could hear water running under the house. A pipe had bursted while I was gone under the house. So I went around and got to where I could see and water was everywhere. And how you like that to greet you when you get home? I thought, man, this is, this is terrible. First thing I thought about, I don't think I'll ever go to the convention again. I stay home where the water and take care of the water lines. And then I thought, how silly that is. And I thought, what am I going to do? Isn't that silly? What am I going to do? And I thought, you know, God knows all about this. I said, Lord, I'm going to call my plumber, help him to be home. I called him on the second ring, he answered. I said, man, I've got a broken water line. And he said, uh, I'll send somebody there in just a moment. By the way, my plumber's daughter comes to your church. And he said, I'll send somebody there. And in 15 minutes, a young man came and got out and went under there and fixed that water leak. And I thought, didn't I act silly? What am I going to do? You see, it's not the circumstances. And it's not the end that matters. It's what you do between the mountain that you're facing and the solution to that problem that counts. And that's where faith takes hold. It's what happens between the beginning of trouble and the end of trouble that you're known for in your legacy. Well, the story was told, and so is mine. The end of the story we read. Jesus takes her, lifts her up, she comes back to life. The story is ended. But you know, in the Gospels, no more was ever said about her. We assume she lived happily ever after. 
That's the way the old movies ended, you know, and they rode off into the sunset and lived happily ever after. But we don't know. You see, the legacy was not about her. It was about her daddy and about the Lord. And however long she lived, her story was always the same. My daddy was a man of God who trusted the Lord. And because of that, I am what I am today. Now, just as sure as you're sitting there and I'm standing here, one of these days, you'll be gone and you're going to leave a legacy. And uh, what's it going to be? I can't answer for anybody but myself, but I'll answer for myself. I don't want my sons to say anything about if I was a great preacher or not. And for certain, they won't say anything about me being a singer. I don't want them to talk about how much I left because I'm not going to have much to leave. My wife and I are spending that now. So what are they going to say? What I want them to say is our dad knew God and followed him and invested his life into the kingdom. You don't have to be a preacher for that either. Invested his life in the service of the Lord. If they'll say that, it is a legacy worth living. And what will they say about you? I have some odd hobbits or uh, hobbies. One of them is when I travel, if I travel through any part of the country and I see a real, real old-looking cemetery, I get out. <coughs> and I go <coughs> in there and I look at the tombstones, gravestones, grave markers. Let me get it right. Started out tombstones, gravestones, grave markers, headstones. Um, I know that's silly because I don't know the people. But I like to do that. It's kind of interesting. Most of them say a great father or a good mother uh, in the hands of Jesus served the country on and on. I saw one in Ohio that really impressed me. Never met the man. He lived to be 80 some years old and died uh, before 1900. And they had chiseled out on his headstone his name and his date of birth and his date of death. And under there it said this, simple, simple language. He served God. He served God. And I thought that says it all. Hundreds of years later, it says it all. He served God. What about you? I want you to stand with me and bow your head, and I want you to think with me for just a moment about your own life. Let's quit talking about Jarius or anybody else. Let's think about our own life. <clears throat> what will they say about you? What will they say about me? You still have time because you're still breathing. You still have time. And if your life is not what you want it to be and doesn't reveal what you want it to reveal, 
you come and ask God to help you. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, this morning for the privilege of sharing your word. Now I pray, Lord, that you'd have your way in every one of us, in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's sing. Let's turn to page 475, Consecration. I'm just an old timer and I can't help it. I can't help but do things the old time way. Not against new ways, but it's too late for me to change a whole lot of things, especially in preaching and in invitations. I'm from the old school to where if God speaks to you, you do something about it. You kneel at an altar of prayer or you do something, you say, Lord, you're speaking to me. I hear you. What do you want me to do? What do you need me to be? What do you want me to change? Most of you came from the same school. We've forgotten over the years what the altars are for. I don't care if anybody comes or not. I never go any place and say, well, there was four at the altar, three at the altar. That's between you and God and me and God. I do know this, though. If God's speaking to you, you have an opportunity to come to him this morning. And not a better place than an altar prayer and say, Lord, I need your help. I want my life to be what it needs to be. So I'm going to ask we sing one more verse. And if anybody wants to come and pray, you come. If you want to pray on your own, that's fine. If you want me or someone to talk with you and pray with you, that's fine too. But if God's speaking to you, you come while we sing.